All right, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles. And we are in Revelation chapter 3 today. We look at the fifth of the seven churches, the church located in the city of Sardis, the church that has been known as the dead church. So let's begin in verse 1. And the angel of the city, uh, I'm sorry, and to the angel of the church in Sardis writes, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember therefore how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The church in Sardis was a dying church, a dead church. The city of Sardis at one time was an illustrious city. But by the time the first century had rolled around, the city was already in great decline. It was a shadow of a, what it once was. And people would often reminisce about the good old days there in Sardis. And yet there was no optimism for the future. There wasn't any hope that the city was going to revive. And much of the decline was due to the fact that the individuals there in their secular thinking, derived from the pagan god of Artemis, believed that everything worked on a secular basis, on a cycle. Artemis was the god that was known for the cult of nature at that time. And so nature, of course, has birth and death and then rebirth, etc., in a natural progression. And many sat back and just waited for the natural progression to take form which it never did. And they became apathetic, complacent, and the city began to decline greatly along with the church. As Jesus says here, they had a name at one time, they're living in the past, and they are not looking to the future. They are more concerned about holding on to what they once had rather than seeing what God would want to them to do at the moment. And as a result, the church died. Now, when a church dies, it doesn't happen overnight. It's a slow progression in many, uh, many cases. Some believe that through the seven churches, we have seven illustrations given of what is known as church progression. Either A, that church progression is um, of an individual church in the lifespan of a church, 
or that progression represents the beginning of the church after in the first century to the end of the church before the rapture of the church at the last days. And the seven churches give us seven stages of the church's existence throughout history. They're both possible, and I think there's some wisdom to that. However, though, I wouldn't limit it to that. When a church dies, it often begins by losing its first love. And then it moves into the world persecuting it, either the persecution coming from the outward or coming from within. They then move to a compromising church that then becomes corrupt. And then in the fifth stage, the church dies. What's interesting, though, if God therefore sees it fit he, and repentance is made, he can often revive that church and bring it back to life, and the church becomes faithful, like the church of Philadelphia. But the end result appears to be that that faithful church will one day become lukewarm and be good for nothing before the Lord. And this is a warning to all of us. It should give us a moment of pause to consider our place within that and what we can do to hear what the Spirit says to the churches and avoid these pitfalls before they occur. But returning to the church of Sardis in chapter 3, verse 1, Jesus identifies himself as he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. The church in Sardis undoubtedly remembers when they, Sardis was conquered by Cyrus many years before. Twice the city was ransacked because the watchers on the wall fell asleep and the invading army came unbeknownst, and stormed the city. And so they realized that there was a vulnerability and that the city had gone through evolutionary changes throughout its existence from being conquered to being reestablished. And now they believe that the city will once again do that, which it never did. And the church somehow, some way will do this apart from God. But Jesus says, and gives us from the very beginning, the indication and in how the church may be revived there in Sardis. The Bible in Revelation gives the Holy Spirit a very unique name. That name is the seven spirits of God. The number seven always means completeness, wholeness, fulfillment, satisfaction. The reason that the Spirit of God is called the seven spirits, first called that in Revelation chapter 1, is because it's alluding to a passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 11 verses 2 through 5, and you can look that up on your own when you have a chance. What will revive the church there in Sardis is the Holy Spirit. What we need today in America is not another program. We don't need another best-selling book to be written. We don't need another top 10 worship song to be written. We don't need any more entertainment-driven motivation. 
We don't need any more emotional responses thinking that we are having a spiritual moment. What we need is a genuine work of the Holy Spirit that always seems to begin with repentance. Laying upon God's people on their hearts to examine their hearts before God as David did and ask the question to see if there be any wicked way in me. When you see throughout history of the United States, whenever we experience the Great Awakening, and in the early 1900s, we experienced that with D.L. Moody here in Chicago, it always began with genuine repentance. That is, to me, the first sign that God is doing something great. And please notice this. I think the layout of the book of Revelation is telling. Before you get into chapters 6 through, 20, uh, through 19, excuse me, where God deals with the world, right? Pouring out the various judgments upon the world. Before he gets to that point, before he does that, who does he deal with first in chapters 2 and 3? The church, his people. Judgment begins in the house of God. If we want revival in and throughout our land, it has to begin with us. We can't wait for someone else to do it and just ride the coattails. If we seriously want God to heal our nation, it begins with the repentance of God's people, doesn't it? We need to get right before God. We need to ask Him if there be any wicked way in us. We need to be humbled before our Lord and allow Him to exalt us in due time. And this is how the Holy Spirit works. There is so much um, misconception, so many misconceptions in our world today of who the Holy Spirit is and how He works. The Bible's clear. But we cannot define the the our theology of the Holy Spirit based upon personal experiences. Our theology of the Holy Spirit must be derived from the Word of God. And if we truly want God to heal our land, if you're tired of watching the news day in and day out, if you're done reading the Twitter uh, feeds one right after another or looking at social media, and then all of a sudden you wonder why you feel depressed. Maybe it's time that we shut those things off, sat down quietly before the Lord, prayed before the Lord, opened His Word and say, Lord, search me. Maybe it's time we get right with God before we can ask Him to do anything in the world. If we're not going to reflect our Lord, then how can we expect our world to reflect our Lord? Now, if you're struggling with sin, the grace of God is there for you. The mercies of God, the love of God. And it's that kindness that leads us to repentance. And the church of Sardis is now being given that opportunity. But you know what? They didn't take it. They chose not to take that opportunity that God provided for them. And the church died. That you have a name, you think you are something, but in actuality, you're dead. When we think of a dead church, often what immediately 
comes to mind is a big building with just a few people within it. But that doesn't seem to be the case here. I think a dead church can be a large building with a lot of people in it. I think it can be a small building with a small number of people in it. The number of people who attend a church isn't the indication if the church is alive or not, according to God. In fact, the smallest church, Philadelphia, is the one that he called the faithful church. We need to look at the work of God through the lens of Scripture and not our own personal experiences, not the marketing of this world, but we have to ask ourselves, is God truly in this place? It's a question I ask all the time. I never take it for granted. I never take it for granted. Especially when you have a church as long as we have, 25 years. It'd be easy just to phone it in. It'd be easy to say, oh man, the best years are behind us. I don't believe that. Because every year in front of us with the Lord is the best year yet still to come. And God knows what he's doing, right? If our heart breaks concerning the world around us, what does God's heart, how does God's heart feel? And here we have a church that had a name at one time, but now is dead. He says, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. We don't know what these works are. And notice here that there is no approval of any sort. In the churches in the past, there was approval for certain things happening within the church. Here he just says, listen, you better look at those last things that are hanging on for dear life because they're about to die. You better take a step back and really, once again, examine yourself before the Lord. That's what he's saying here. And he uses five imperatives here in our text. Five. But remember when Jesus interacted with the religious leaders of that time. They looked good on the outside, didn't they? They looked very religious, very pious, very righteous. Ooh, the religious leaders, right? But Jesus called them white-walled sepulchers. Jesus did not get the book on being politically correct. That chapter was not in his upbringing. He called it as it was. They had a facade. It looked good from the outside, but inward it was dead and corrupt and full of bones and dead things, Jesus said. James went on to say in James 2.26, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. The church here was dead. So he asks them to consider five things. Their works were not complete, not perfect. They were falling far short of their obligations. As one wrote concerning the church, he said the Sardis congregation needed the, those qualities which the church in Thyatira had. Love, faith, service, and perseverance. If they had any of those or any like them, they were half-hearted in putting them into practice. Nothing they started ever came to completion. 
And notice, too, that there were no doctrinal concerns, right? There were no doctrinal admonishments or corrections concerning the church of Sardis. It seemed like doctrine became irrelevant. Just a group of people coming together, socializing, remembering what once was rather than what was yet to come. It didn't appear to be the focus on God's word or the teaching and the edification of the saints and the evangelism of the world. That didn't seem to even come into play in their mind. And notice there was also no persecution because they had become irrelevant in the world's eyes. Folks, I'm going to say this, and I truly believe this. I heard this decades ago, but if we're living our Christian life faithfully, we will experience persecution in one form or another. Now, Peter made it clear, if you're persecuted for being a jerk, this is found in the Eric Standard Version, (laughs) if you're found persecuted for being a jerk, that's on you. But if they object to the gospel message as offensive, if they object to the righteousness in which we live our lives and conduct our lives within, then so be it. But have you noticed that very few Christians seem to be persecuted for their faith? In fact, it wasn't until the COVID pandemic began to blossom and individuals were threatened either get the vaccine or lose your job, that we started to feel the weight of pressure from the world. But those who desire to live godliness will experience persecution. Hey, be prepared for it. You might not be invited back to Christmas dinner because you stood up for Jesus. And if you did it humbly, with love and mercy, and they still object to it, then so be it. Praise God, pray for them, and continue on. If, you, if they're more offended by the way you said it because you were harsh and were being rude and intolerant uh, and, you know, um, well, frankly, just a jerk, then apologize for that, but don't apologize for the message. So five things are said here. Number one, be watchful. It means to become alert, to be vigilant, vigilant, excuse me, and to stand guard. As Paul wrote in Romans 13, 11 through 14, I'd like to read these to you if I may. It should be on the screen behind me. And do this, knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed, meaning we're closer to the Lord's return than ever before. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry or drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife or envy, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. This is what it means to be vigilant. I said it again. Vigilant. This is what it means. And then he says, be strengthened. To cause someone to become stronger in the sense of more firm and unchanged attitudes in their belief. We need more than ever not only to know what we believe, 
but why we believe it. And knowing why we believe it should give us the resolve to stand against the tsunami of intellectual pressure that the world is going to place upon us. If we fold under the world's pressures and say we have convictions, the world will never take our convictions seriously. Do you know that in church history, I find it fascinating that the world took the church most seriously when individuals were willing to die for their faith. When individuals were willing to die for their faith. That's when the world took a step back and said, wait, there must be something more to this. And it all began in the book of Acts with Saul, who of course we now know as Paul. And when Stephen was being martyred for the faith, when he was being stoned to death, and Saul held those jackets, and you know Stephen lifted his eyes and said, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Imitating his Lord, of course, what Jesus did on the cross. We know that that was the beginning of the conviction in Paul's heart concerning the reality that Jesus Christ was exactly who he said it was. Hey, if we're not willing to suffer for our beliefs, then do we really believe what we say we believe? Or are we just going to let the world steamroll right over us? I know that sounds contentious, but I do believe the Bible says live peaceably with all around you as much as you possibly can, but there will come a time where we will be forced to either... uh, Exalt the Lord or recant the Lord. And it's at that moment that we must stand firm. After strength, he talks about remember. Notice here with me in verse 3. In verse 2, he said, Be watchful and strengthened in the things which remain. We don't know what those are. That are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, here's the third one. Remember. Now remember, you're so good at living in the past, but remember why the church flourished at that time. It was because of a healthy embrace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was because the gospel of Jesus Christ, when they properly handled it, this life-giving message, it started everything and continued to do its work. Hey, we need to be sharing the gospel unapologetically, right? The world is being destroyed. Our friends are being destroyed. Our loved ones are being destroyed by the world and sin. We have the answer. And now more, we seem more reluctant than ever to share that with them. We seem more reluctant than ever just to talk about Jesus with them for fear, for you know, exclusion. We're afraid that they're not going to talk to us anymore if we do. But the gospel, when the gospel is allowed to do what the gospel does naturally, that is the beginning of new life within the church. Then he says, hold fast, observing it and obeying it. What we know to be true, we must observe it and we must obey it. Therefore, how you have received and heard, hold fast and leading to number five, repent. Here it is. This is the beginning of revival. It's repentance. If you want revival to begin in your own heart, 
It begins with repentance. It begins by looking at yourself honestly and objectively in the light and in the mirror of the Word of God and just saying, Lord, search me to see if there be any wicked way in me. Now, please, I am not throwing stones. I'm not condemning anyone. This is something that I have to do. This is something that I need to always remind myself that I can't be the man of God, the husband that God needs me to be, the father that God needs to be, me to be, the pastor that God needs to be, me to be if I'm going to walk in sin. I can't do it, and neither can you. And it all begins with repentance. Because he says, therefore, if you will not watch... I will come upon you as a thief. This is language of judgment. And you will not know what hour I will come upon you. For you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. And they, have, they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy." There were those few who still loved the Lord, whose garments they had not been defiled, meaning they're not walking in sin. They will be robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They will conquer and overcome. And notice their name will not be blotted out of the Lamb's book of life. Let's talk about that word worthiness, okay? It's a word that seems not to fit within the Christian faith because of our understanding of God's grace. Now, I believe that the way that the word worthy is used in Scripture does not negate the grace of God in any way, shape, or form. God is always the first to initiate everything. God initiated your salvation before the foundations of the world. He initiates. He is the initiator in all things. Even the love that we have for Him and for others all began because He first loved us, right? We love because He first loved us. God initiates everything. But what's key is our reaction to what God does initiate. How we respond And nothing outlines this more beautifully than the book of Ephesians itself. Through chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul writes to you of all the blessings that have been given to us in Christ Jesus that are found in heavenly places, all of them. But in verse 1 of chapter 4, he then says to his recipients, now walk worthy of these things. Here's everything that God has done for you. Now walk worthy of those things. And that response is a healthy Christian response. Your desire to walk worthy of everything that God has blessed you with, and that worthiness is not the determination for earning your salvation or maintaining your salvation. That worthiness is a response to all that God has done and truly is our only required response. It's being grateful. 
God, you saved me. You gave me new life. Now I desire to walk worthy of what you have blessed me with. That's the way Paul is using it. That's the way Jesus is using it here. So I would encourage you to read the book of Ephesians. To see everything that God has done on your behalf. And then he gets into how we shall respond to those things. I think we have cheapened grace to the point where it's almost unrecognizable in our country anymore. The grace of God is one of the most dynamic aspects of God. And yet we have cheapened it. Just as we have cheapened the word love. Right? Love is so cheap now, we throw it around for everything. People fall in love, they fall out of love. Love is just a mere chemical reaction in the brain, some say. I love my dog, I love pizza, I love my girlfriend, I love my wife. You know, love is just thrown around haphazardly where it doesn't really mean anything anymore. So does grace in the church. The grace of God was one of the most precious things given to the church. Paul's response, John's response, Peter's response, Jude's response to God's grace is always incredible gratitude. Let us never cheapen the grace of God by saying, it doesn't matter how I live, for the grace of God covers a multitude of sin. But please read on, brother. It's not that we may continue in those sins, but repent of them. That's what God is saying. And even at this point in this dead church, Jesus still sees that there are those who belong to him, encouraging them to continue walking in the worthiness of all that they have been blessed with in and through Christ Jesus. They have not defiled their garments, meaning they're walking according to their prescribed manner, and he'll clothe them with his righteousness that Paul speaks about in great detail in the book of Romans. For they are worthy. But notice verse 5. A couple things here. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life. Now let's stop there for a minute. What is the book of life? In Rome, and again, there, he, you know, John is addressing a Gentile city. Christ, I should say, is addressing a Gentile city. In Rome, there was this register called the Register of Life. Every person who is born into the Roman culture as a citizen of Rome, their name was written in the Roman Register of Life. And when they died... Their name was erased to show that they had died. This was a common, familiar concept to the recipients of the letter. This book was also used to determine if the individual was a Roman citizen or not. To prove your Roman citizenship, you would have documentation. On those documentations, it would have the city in which you were born when you were born, and also uh, allude to the registry entry within that city to prove that you are truly a citizen of Rome. The book of life is a symbol of that. It is a, it's, it's a parallel to that. 
where from the foundations of the world, each and every person who lives is first found in the book of life. If that person dies without receiving Jesus Christ, their name is blotted out, erased. Okay? Therefore, when they stand before God in Revelation chapter 20 at the great white throne, one of the various books, that, many books that are open is the book of life. And if their name is not found in it, they are then cast off because they died apart from Jesus Christ. All right, does that make sense? Okay, let's look at some verses that help us flesh that out. Beginning in Revelation chapter 13, verses 7 and 8, talking of the Antichrist, it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Should be on the screen behind me. And the authorities were given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. And all who dwelt on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundations of the world. Now, some believe that there are two books, the book of life and the book of the Lamb. There is interesting verses that would indicate that, that the book of the Lamb is those who get saved during their lifetime. I don't know if we can draw that distinction simply based on this text and one other, or if they're used synonymously with one another and interchanged with one another, that I'll leave for you to decide. But either way, the name not found in the book determines damnation. And those who are overcome by the wicked one, the Antichrist, during the tribulation, their name is not found in the book of life. In Revelation 17, 8, the beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life. See, they're used interchangeably. From the foundations of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. And notice in Revelation 20, 12, this is when judgment now is rendered based on the absence of their name. In Revelation 20, 12, and I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the book. Now in verse 15, John goes on to say, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. But as we travel on in Revelation, in Revelation 21, 27, but there shall be uh, by no means, uh, but there shall by no means enter into the, anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And that's the question. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? I never think that everyone that I meet who 
says that they're a Christian, I never automatically, uh, how do I put it? Take it for granted that they are. Now, I'm not being skeptical, skeptical of it or critical of it. I'm just saying there's a lot of people in America who I obviously identify as Christian, but don't have any heart for God. Every year we hear about the number of so-called proclaimed evangelicals in America. And then yet, when that question is uh, you know, qualified a little bit and the questions are asked, out of those people who claim to be evangelical Christians, a large percentage of them believe that there are many ways to God, not only Jesus. That the Bible isn't the inspired word of God. Very few attend church or read the Bible. So there's a lot of people who I believe in this country identify as a Christian who may not be one. This is why the Bible says, make your calling and election sure. I'm not judging you. I'm not criticizing you. I'm just asking you a question. Make your calling and election sure. I ask you today, is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Do you know for sure that if you were to die tonight that you would step from this world into eternity? If you are not sure about that, then be sure before you leave today. This Roman register was used quite often. As I said, that Roman register, if anyone dies, their name was being removed. But there is a second reason that their name may be removed from the Roman register, and that was if they were a criminal, they could lose, as part of their punishment, their Roman citizenship. Very interesting. As we travel further through the book of Revelation, we'll be clarifying more concerning the Lamb's book of life, so stay tuned as we continue on. But Jesus said very clearly, not only will he not blot out the name of those who overcome from the book of life, but he says also, I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Remember when Jesus said something that should cause us all to again take a moment of pause when he says, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before the Father? I believe that's eschatological in the sense that it happens in the last days. One who professes to be a Christian but then denies Christ before the world could find themselves in that position that Matthew tells us in 721 that many will stand before me in that day saying, Lord, Lord, haven't we done all these things in your name? And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. It's at that moment that we need Christ to confess that we are his for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Can you imagine going through your whole life thinking that you were saved to discover at that moment that you're not? That's terrifying to me. He says, I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. Depart from me you who practice wickedness. But for us who are in Christ, I want to read this to you to encourage you this morning. Paul wrote it in Romans 8, 38 and 39. 
For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities nor powers, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's our assurance. Greg Laurie tells a story about a small town and one evening they discovered that the the local church was on fire and the church was just blazing and just engulfed in flames and the pastor ran to the church to see how he could assist the firefighters and possibly salvage something from the church. And lo and behold, one of the local neighbors walked across the street to see if he could help the pastor with the church and with anything that may survive the fire. And the pastor looked at this gentleman and said, I have been asking you to come to this church for years and you've never taken me up on my invitation. Why have you come now at all? At, at any, why did you come now when the church is burning down? He goes, well, the reason I came now is that this is the first time the church has ever been on fire. A dead church makes no impact in the world around us. Why are we here? Why do you get up every Sunday morning, hopefully bathe before you come? We all appreciate that. Brush your teeth, have breakfast, drive as many minutes or miles as you do. Why do we come to church? Why do we gather? I, I simplify it with the three E's. And there, it's not all about Eric, so don't worry about it. The three E's. Number one, we come together to exalt God. Number one, to exalt God. Number two, we come to edify the saints, to build each other up in the faith. And number three, we equip one another to evangelize. Number three, evangelize the lost world around us. This is why we attend church. It's not simply for socialization. It's not just simply to feel better. It's coming to, be, to exalt God, to be equipped, and to prompt ourselves to evangelize the world around us. Chuck Swindoll, in one of his masterpieces, wrote the five signs of a dead church. I want you to listen to these with me as I close. Because I want you all to know so we can keep each other accountable and pray for one another. So we never find ourselves in the position of Sardis. Number one, he said, a dead church worships the past. And so he repeats himself, a dead church worships its past. Maybe there were amazing stories of conversions and lives changed, but it is in the distant past, he writes. And that is why I am saying... I was saying earlier, we can rejoice in what God did 20, 30, 40 years ago. But what about now? I don't want to live in the past. A live church always living in the present and is planning for the future. Amen. What God did yesterday is wonderful, and we praise Him for it. 
I wait with an anticipation what, what God's going to do today, and I believe him. But what God's going to do in the future, this is where I say, let's see what God has in mind. And I want to be part of it. I hope you do too. A dead church is inflexible, number two, and resistant to change. Again, a dead church is inflexible and resistant to change, he writes. Something in the church, sometimes in the church, we are flexible where we should be inflexible, and we are inflexible where we should be flexible. Pastor Chuck had a saying of one of his many little proverbs that blessed are the flexible for they shall not be broken. Again, let's see what God wants to do going forward. Here's one that I search my heart always to make sure I'm not falling into. A dead church has lazy leadership, complacent and lethargic, set it as the church in a spiritual cruise control, not wanting to do anything new or even rethink the way things are done. Yeah, that's when you fossilize. Now, I want to share with you where I'm at right now. After our 25th anniversary, I've spoke to some of my mentors, I've spoken with Dina, and I am really seeking the Lord and what He would want us to do. I don't want to start something just to start something. I don't want to do something just to do something. I want to see what God does. I want to see what open doors He presents. And I am ready to walk through those doors. Even if it requires faith to do so. Especially if it requires faith, because then I know God is in it. But what I'm not going to do is just get on the bike and start pedaling. Just wasting all the energy, finances, money, time, etc. To do something that God is not in. Now... This requires us to do something that most Christians hate to do, and that is wait on God. So we're going to do what we know God wants us to do. Love and feed the sheep, equip people for evangelism, exalt the Lord, reach the lost. That's those things we are going to do. But I am confident that we will be prepared and ready for the next door that God opens. And I am prepared, even if that door looks so different than any open door that we've ever seen before. A person waiting on God is not a complacent Christian. It's not an apathetic Christian, and it's not a lazy Christian. It's a Christian that is positioning himself before the Lord as a living sacrifice, saying, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Lead us and take us to where you will have us. Now, when that will be, I don't know. But in the meantime, we'll do everything Scripture tells us to do. Does that make sense? And let's see what God does. Let's see what God has in mind. Number four, a dead church neglects the youth. Maybe it's because they are tending to an aging congregation, so they fail to reach the next generation. We have always put here at Calvary a high emphasis on the youth, from our Sunday school program to the youth group, etc. Always looking to reach the next generation. And I want to encourage you, parents who have children in our Sunday school, please know what they're doing. They are equipping your kids. They are taking them through the Word of God. They are helping them to establish a biblical worldview from a very young age. That's what's happening, and that's what's going on. 
And so it's so important that you understand that. And number five, a sign of a dead church, it, it lacks evangelistic zeal. If new converts are not coming into the church, it's only a matter of time until that church stagnates and is spiritually dead. And that's really where my heart is, guys, to seek and to save those who are lost. As John then concludes and Jesus says in verse 6, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now I want to leave it on a positive note because something's happening. Something is happening. In Kentucky, this week, on Wednesday, at Ashbury College, a group of kids gathered for their daily chapel service. Go ahead, Nathan. For their daily chapel service, and something happened. As they were teaching through the 12th chapter of the book of Romans, the Spirit of God came upon them like they had not seen in over 50 years. And kids got up, left, and felt so compelled that they returned. They were worshiping God, praying, crying in repentance of sin, and I want to share with you what started as 30 students is now up to 1,000 and it's still going on today from Wednesday. This is what you call revival. Now, here's the interesting part. Remember I showed you that video clip? How revival started in 1969 and really came to full uh, tilt in 1970? I want to read a little bit from this article. This is a, uh, the, uh, one of the people from the university. She said, this is not the first time that revival has hit our campus here at Ashbury. Uh, this, was, uh, this happened for the first time back in February of 1970, which the university in 2020 celebrated the 50th anniversary of. The 1970 revival spread impacting various places, including Southwestern Baptist Theology Seminary of Fort Worth, Texas, after three Ashbury students spoke about their experience here at the student body. Is this the beginning of what we saw happen in the 1970s? Now, why do I say that? Because when revival starts, it's, it, it starts like looking at your garden at a time such as this. You just see the dirt, right? You just see the dirt, but then spring comes. And you start seeing these little shoots come out of the ground. And often when the awakenings and revivals started in America, they started at these little shoots. Nobody could put them into context because... They were just all over the place, these little things just happening where all these people were starting to get saved and so forth. And then after time, by the late 1970s, uh, it had shot up into the great Jesus movement that we all know of today. Is God getting ready to move again in our day? 
Well, if he is, I want to do everything I can to prepare myself to be part of what God is going to do next. Do you agree? You want to be part of it? Amen.